Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Julie Fernandez, who works as a clinical specialist coordinating the Hand Therapy Fellowship Program at NYU Langone Orthopedic Center. This interview is being recorded on April 28th, 2020. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. Originally from South Africa, Julie received her occupational therapy degree from the University of Cape Town. She went on to specialize in hand therapy, honing her ability to fabricate splints and treat surgical patients. In 2009, Julie relocated to Chicago and then to New York City, where she has worked as a certified hand therapist for the past eight years. She has a post-professional clinical doctorate in occupational therapy and has published in the peer-reviewed American Journal of Occupational Therapy on the topic of the occupational therapist's role in perinatal care, a health promotion approach. So in my introduction of you a couple moments ago, I said that you coordinate the Hand Therapy Fellowship Program. Please tell our listeners something about the purpose of the program and who's in it and the kinds of things that transpire. Right. So, you know, hand therapy is a specialty of occupational therapy and physical therapy. Generally, a few more occupational therapists become hand therapists than physical therapists. But we wanted to have a program that provides an opportunity for someone who is an occupational therapist who would like to further their skills in hand therapy. And that is trending towards a fellowship program, which we are seeing more and more in rehabilitation. So this year we have our first fellow. And um, this program really takes somebody who does not have a lot of experience in hand therapy but wants to learn more. And we have a very mentored approach. We spend the year going through didactic materials, so really specializing in anatomy, physiology, and surgical procedures around hand therapy, and really helping someone transition from entry-level occupational therapist to on their way to be becoming a certified hand therapist, if that's the path that they choose. Many of our listeners are not in the health field, and some of them may not be familiar with the range of services provided by occupational therapists. Please describe in general the kinds of health care that OTs provide to patients. So OTs can really work wherever there are people. We are very diverse in the settings that we can work in. You may know about occupational therapists in school systems. They work closely with children. They help help kids with developmental delays or just to promote better development for them. We also work in mental health. And then in, in my area, we're working in more on the physical side, orthopedics, hand therapy. So really the way that I describe occupational therapy is helping someone with any kind of potential that we can unlock for them. So whichever area in life that they're having difficulty with, an OT can come in, assess, evaluate, provide suggestions, and help them improve their quality of life. 
You recently had an article published with the title, Adapting to the New Normal, Four Things for OTs to Focus on with COVID-19. Please tell our listeners something about the intended audience and why it's important to convey that information to them. Right. So my goal when writing this article was really to look at occupational therapy in a different way. So to somewhat reinvent ourselves and provide value to our patients during this uncertain time. And I really see this as an opportunity for change to empower both patients and families and caregivers to take a much more active role in their care, which I think will help them once this whole pandemic is over. And so the article that I wrote provides some practical ways that patients and therapists can continue to communicate and interact and have quality therapy, even when they don't see each other in person. The next question is slightly different. So looking at the fact that the health status of many residents of New York City has been ravaged by the arrival of the coronavirus, please indicate if you and other occupational therapists have had to redefine how you provide therapy to patients. Right. So we have had to really think about how can we still provide quality, valuable care to people um, considering the circumstances. So we are doing video visits. We do e-visits. We're in contact constant communication with our patients just to check in on them and make sure that they are healthy and doing well. And, you know, we look at things like exercises and how can we upgrade them or change them and use practical objects around the house to still promote their plan of care. One of your present duties involves splinting post-operative patients for hand surgeons as needed. At what stage in treating patients is this service provided? And I guess what I have in mind is the surgery has been completed. So does your work begin mm-hmm. that day, a week later, or a month later? Or at what point do you enter the situation and begin providing care? Right. So it's a little bit different based on the diagnosis and the surgeon. Usually it's when that patient comes in for their first post-op visit, so they'll be coming in to have their sutures removed, their stitches removed, and to see the doctor to check in on everything, and then we will provide them with a splint or the correct the new term is an orthosis. So they'll have their cast removed, so it's a very usually a bulky dressing that's quite heavy, you can't get it wet, that kind of thing. They'll have that removed, the therapist will fabricate an orthosis for them, and they'll be able to remove it to see what's going on and be able to shower and all that kind of stuff. So usually it's a week or so after the, therapy, after the surgery, depends. Some patients infected with the coronavirus are going to end up being hospitalized. So this question has to deal with the possible different stages when occupational therapy might be most effective. For example, some of those patients could be placed in an immobilized position. Would it still be possible to provide occupational therapy when that occurs? And if so, what kinds of things would you be doing with that type of patient? So I think, you know, it is still possible to help in some way, especially the acute care occupational therapists. They would be the experts at this. But OTs do work with positioning, making sure that the patient is as comfortable as possible. We would want to prevent any kind of pressure sore, that kind of thing. I think also the occupational therapist will have a role to play with helping the nurses in terms of moving joints and just making sure the patient is um, as comfortable as possible and preventing any kind of comorbidity that may occur uh, when you're hospitalized for a long time with something like COVID. You also engage with patients through the use of telehealth. 
Please describe what such interactions look like and the kinds of therapy that can be provided when you're at a remote geographical distance from those patients. Right, so we provide telehealth, which can either be a video visit, so both the therapist and the patient are able to view each other on the phone, or uh, e-visit, which is through a phone call. And my experience with this is that it is a lot of patient education, so there's a lot of communication and talking, which is which is very good. And also the therapist is able to demonstrate exercises, the patient is able to do exercises alongside the therapist, the patient can show the therapist their injury or, you know, their hand if there's a scar on there or something that they want to sort of be looked at. So there's actually a lot of things that we can do via telehealth. So I found it to be a good, definitely a great alternative. Along similar lines, please indicate any significant differences that might exist between providing hands-on care when you're in the clinical setting and what can be offered using a telehealth approach instead. Right. So the big difference between telehealth and in-person therapy is that we are unable to do manual therapy. So we can't touch a patient, which has been an adjustment. But I think this is an opportunity for us to empower patients to do certain techniques themselves. So such as scar massage, that's something that someone can do that perhaps a therapist would have provided in the past but we always want them to be doing it at home anyway. So now it's even more incentive to do that. And just kind of moving, using your environment to provide some kind of resistance if you wanted to stretch out a joint or anything like that under the guidance of a therapist. So it's obviously less hands-on with telehealth, but I think that's a good thing to empower people to take care of themselves. Many of your professional colleagues are working right in the inpatient center with the patients who have been infected with the coronavirus. And part of that may be involving much longer hours than usual associated with working in those clinical settings. And the result of that could possibly be added stresses and strains that they're going to be experiencing. What kinds of personal adjustments might you recommend that could be made regarding those caregivers compared to when there was no such infectious agent present in their lives? This is a tough one, but I think that caregivers uh, have to recognize that they really need to look after themselves as well uh, because they're not going to be able to provide care if they are unhealthy or burnt out. So what I can recommend is that they try and identify when they're feeling like they need some kind of uh, assistance. They try and be as healthy as possible through their diet, through moving, through getting adequate sleep where possible so that if they are exposed to the virus, they have the best chances of being able to uh, fight it off, and also just sharing sharing care to prevent burnout and talking to their support system so that they can kind of alleviate some of that stress that inevitably happens something like this. The kinds of patients that you're dealing with more than likely will differ on a lot of personal characteristics, such as their different age, gender, even their ability to speak English and have it as a primary language rather than a secondary language. Please mention any kinds of challenges that must be addressed in dealing with those individuals who cover such a wide range of personal characteristics. Right. So, you know, when patients don't speak English, obviously that presents some kind of barrier, but we have a lot of bilingual therapists who are certified in another language to be able to conduct medical care. And so where possible, if language is an issue, we try and match up uh, that patient with a therapist 
who is able to communicate with them. Otherwise, we do have interpreting services that help us. And then in terms of age or perhaps barriers when it comes to technology, you know, we try um, and accommodate people as far as possible. So if someone is not comfortable using a video visit, we would call them over the phone and we will just, we will try and make sure that the language that we are using to educate people in is easily understandable so that everybody can kind of be on the same page. Treating coronavirus patients is possibly going to have long-term implications for how various therapies are provided. We already talked a little bit about doing so through telehealth. It's quite possible that new forms of research are going to be generated. All kinds of questions are being asked about what we're doing now and how it might improve in the future. Can you indicate any occupational therapy studies that it could be worth launching in order to enhance the care of patients who will be treated at some future time? Yeah, so I think this has really changed how we conduct therapy forever. You know, the fact now that we have the technology to do telehealth gives people a lot more options. Uh, I think it would be interesting to study the quality of care from a patient's perspective, whether they feel in-person is better than virtual and kind of using qualitative research to dive into that and see, you know, is one better than the other? Can one substitute for the other? Is Are they both... Do they both have pros and cons, which I suggest is, which I anticipate would be likely? Uh, and I, yeah, I think, I think that'll be an interesting topic to explore. Apart from the practice domain, there's the educational sphere. So we have faculty that are in occupational therapy education programs who, under normal circumstances, I'm sure find it challenging to anticipate all the different kinds of situations that their students eventually are going to face when they enter the workplace. So based on your experiences with your patients, is there anything that you would recommend be incorporated into occupational therapy education programs? Yeah, you know, uh, technology kind of goes side, and side by side with education. So I'm sure a lot of students are familiar with, with virtual technology, but I think this needs to be addressed in occupational therapy education as if this is something that we're going to move towards in the future. You know, something that I've also thought about is if we're able to connect with patients virtually like this, this means that we can also connect with other occupational therapy students virtually, and that could mean uh, breaking down barriers and borders internationally with other occupational therapy schools. Perhaps this could increase and improve experiences of occupational therapy students because they can now be virtually part of other occupational therapists experiences in different countries, and that could be a really rich experience for people um, in this profession, which I think will help them to navigate the, the diverse world that we find ourselves in. Over and above what we've been talking about, is there anything that hasn't been mentioned you'd like to indicate now? Ah, you know, not really. I, this, is a, this is an interesting time. I think it's easy for us to get down about it because there's been so much change so quickly, but we just have to remind ourselves that this is an opportunity to innovate and to take these lessons forward once this is all finished and over. Dr. Julie Fernandez, I'm going to conclude this interview by thanking you for sharing your valuable insights with our listeners about your activities involving the care of patients. It has been both an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today. I wish you continued success in all your endeavors, and I hope you stay healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. 
Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.